Welcome back, folks. This is Mark Steiner right here on The Mark Steiner Show and your source for cool jazz and more, WEAA, 88.9 FM, the voice of the community. We are going to leap into what's been going on around us in this country. Uh, the shootings that took place last week um, at the baseball practice of the Republican Party in preparation for their game. Um, what happened there? What is the violence kind of anger that's gripping this nation? We'll look at that. Um, and that on the heels of being mixed with the Castile, the, the murder of Castile and the freeing of the um, freeing because of a hung jury uh, in Minnesota uh, and of, of Officer Geronimo Yanez uh, in the killing of Philando Castile and, of course, the Bill Cosby trial. And now we have uh, the uh, van that ran into Muslims leaving their prayers in London. Um, and I don't know if this moment's any madder than others have been in, in, in human history, but people are feeling it at this moment. We are here. Uh, with uh, Dr. Kimberly Moffitt, Associate Professor of American Studies at the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, co-hosting here on the Rock Steiner Show at times, and so is one of our other guests, um, and co-editor of Blackberries and Redbones, Critical Articulations of Black Hair Body Politics in Africana Communities. Uh, and uh, we're also joined by Dr. Carsonia Whitehead. Kay Whitehead is an Associate <laughs> Professor of Communication in African and African American Studies at Loyola University of Maryland, author of numerous books, including Black Sons, my Black Sons, Raising Boys in a Post-Racial America. Mark Trahan joins us, writer at TrahanReports.com, faculty member at the University of North Dakota, where he is the Charles R. Johnson Endowed Professor of Journalism, a member of the Academy of Arts and Sciences, and a former director and one of the founders of the Native American Journalists Association. Uh, and Imara Jones, who holds a degree from London School of Economics, worked in the Clinton White House, and is currently developing a television program aimed at millennials, progressive millennials of color. So Imara, Mark, Kay, Kimberly, welcome. Good to have you all with us. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having us. Good to have you all here. So let, let me begin across the nation here, if I might. Um, and, and, you know, Mark Trahan, you, you heard what kind of my, this litany I, I, I laid out there at the top. Um, and I think that there are many people who see these things as kind of very disparate and different. Um, and, and perhaps the trials are in some ways which we can get into. But the kind of level of anger and violence we're seeing in America now um, is palpable. I mean, you can feel it. Um, and, and, I, and, and people argue that maybe we're in a place now that's more violent than we have been in a while. I'm not sure that's true or not. But what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, well, certainly with uh, some communities, the violence has always been there, unfortunately. Uh, but I think it's exposed now, and it's easier to get the word out about it. Uh, the, the Castillo verdict was one where virtually everyone that I talked to in Minneapolis knew this decision was likely, and yet had deep hope that it wouldn't happen, that the jury would somehow rise above it, and uh, just couldn't couldn't find that uh, that one thing. I do think we have this great problem right now of crossing boundaries and talking to people that we normally don't talk to, and that may be the challenge for our age. Crossing boundaries. These are very thick boundaries we're, cro we're, we're in the midst of, Imara. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Good morning. Um, morning. Um, actually, though, before I start, I just wanted to say that um, <clears throat> I am so, so sad that your show is, is leaving next month. Um, it's been a thrill to always be on. Um, you're such uh, an important and leading voice. I think all of your voice, uh, your, your uh, listeners, agree with me um, and that we hope 
that you find a way to continue to keep using it uh, even even after the end of next month. So mm-hmm. I, I just wanted to say that. Thank you, Mara. That means um, a great deal. Thank you very much. You're welcome. Um, so I wanted to, to just make an observation here. I think that you're right. I think um, I was at the People Summit last week. Uh, oh, right. Um, yeah, um, the, uh, in Chicago, where I, I was doing a whole host of... Um, of interviews there with thought leaders and activists and a whole host of other people. Those, sh- those should air sometime soon, actually. Um, and one of the things that happened in a press roundtable that I did for the, uh, the Nation and Mike and others um, is one of the journalists there, uh, during a conversation that we, we had, um, I, I raised the fact that it seemed as if um, one of the things that came out of the People Summit is that the 2016 election isn't over. Um, and another person said in that roundtable, yeah, the election, uh, we had an election, but nothing is resolved. And I think that that's a really important backdrop for the conversation that you initiated this morning, because all of the emotion, the intensity, the anger, the vitriol, the nastiness, the racism, the misogyny, the homophobia, I mean, we, we have a long list. All of that was unearthed, but it has not been resolved. It has just been you know, a piece of radioactive waste that's been put in the middle of America's dining room table. And I think that that is a backdrop um, for a lot of what we're talking about this morning. Uh, I've been thinking a lot about this. Thank you. I mean, as as we were beginning this conversation and thinking about how to frame it, I mean, today, of course, is Juneteenth, Juneteenth Day. Right, I, meant to, day I was, meant to open the show. You thank you. Show. Oh, yes. I'm about Juneteenth. Did I open the show that way? No. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but, but noting that, that for, for people who are not familiar with Juneteenth, it is a day for freedom. I mean, we are talking about, you know, this notion of emancipation getting down to the enslaved populations of Texas. And, and what did that mean for them and the ways in which it's been celebrated throughout the years of, of being the descendants of people who chose to survive? So here we are at another Juneteenth Day celebration, and I woke up this morning to the news about Charlena Lyles mm. in Seattle, mm. you know, a black woman with three children, pregnant, uh, called the police because she thought she heard a burglar. She had a small knife, is what they said, uh, because she has one child who um, struggles with Down syndrome, right. and she was concerned that the cops were going to turn and take her children from her, and two white police officers shot her to death. So we wake up multiple times. So we wake up with that news. We wake up with the news of Nabra, you know, the Muslim girl who was kidnapped and killed just yesterday. I mean, we're waking up with all of this. I missed Nabra. Yes. So Nabra. Just in Virginia. Just in Virginia. Virginia? 17 years old. Nabra, outside of a Virginia mosque, uh, she was kidnapped and murdered. And they said a bat was found uh, at the crime scene. So there's this whole campaign that started again this morning. It's like my throat is so tired from just trying to say their names, right? Because yesterday, thinking about Father's Day and Shaka Khan, (laughs) uh, did did this whole tweet where she said, Happy Father's Day, and named all of the black men who had been victims of police brutality. It's a long Mm. list. Um, But thinking about all of that, as we get into this conversation, the conversation that has been ongoing. I mean, you think about the birth of the Black Lives Lives Matter movement. This is not a new conversation that with the election of Donald Trump, all it did was bring all these issues that we've been struggling and talking about just to the front page. It's not as if we haven't been dealing with this. This is not the first time that a black woman has been killed when she's called the cops for assistance. This is not the first time that you've had an attack on a Muslim team. This is not the first time that we're dealing with a police officer shooting and killing a 
black man, this time, of course, on video, streaming live on Facebook, and then not being indicted. This is not the first time for any of this. I think my real question I want us to explore, what are we going to do differently? Right. Are we going to have a hashtag memorial, have long conversations, and then we settle back down to the familiar, and then it happens again, and we start all over again? How can we disrupt what seems to be the ongoing narrative that we've all become accustomed to? I concur. Um, it's tiring. And there has to be another way for us to address so much of the trauma and pain that I think we are reinscribing for the next generation. Because sometimes I, I, I think we get caught up in, in the space of what we occupy and we don't think about those, in particular, our children and future grandchildren who are watching all of this unfold before their eyes and what they think about their own future and what they think about what people think of who they are in their brown and black bodies walking around now so one of the things one of the things we said a moment ago i think Yamara, you might have said it um that it has to do with this kind of divide we have uh in this country do we think and then we'll open the phone to ariel you're the first caller up we'll get to your call right after this do we think it can be bridged mm. um is there a bridging these divides and does it i mean it's you know i i hearken back to my very uh, youthful life when I was a kid and I was involved in something called the National Conference of Christians and Jews Brotherhood Youth Conference <laughs> that I helped chair when I was 13, 14 years old. <laughs> so you just grew up around it. I mean, <laughs> early on. <laughs> but then that was was kind of, a, and, I, and people use this in a negative way, and I'm not using it in a negative way, kind of a kumbaya moment mm -hmm. where people were trying to bring people from different communities together to see, to learn from one another because we were always so separate. Right. Uh, black, white, Jewish, uh, Protestant, Catholic, mm -hmm. you know, in that era. Um, we didn't involve Buddhists and Muslims at that time, and that was, uh, and, but so, and, and Latinos, so it was, anyway, so I'm thinking about that. But I think this is not something like that. I think this is a, a divide that has gotten, uh, that, that has deep roots. Um, and sometimes people argue that political struggle can overcome it, political struggle together over some common issue, whatever that is. Um, and I, I just, you know, where, where do we think this leaves us? I mean, you know, you see the violence that took place uh, with the man who, what's his name, Higgin? Higgin? Oh, yeah, um, James. Hodgkinson? Hodgkinson, mm -hmm. I'm sorry, just lost it for a minute. Mm -hmm. Hodgkinson, uh, who, was, uh, who, who, who shot Scalise. Um, oddly enough, Scalise was saved by uh, a, yes. a black lesbian <laughs> police officer. Um, people who he attacked in Congress, on the, in the halls of I Congress. I love the way it all comes full circle. Yes. But, but yes. can these, can, can we, is a bridge possible? I mean, and let, me, let me just go to the phone first and come back to the, the okay. studio. And Mark, I mean, because, you know, as a native man also living in, in the Dakotas, I mean, and, and watching what you've seen your whole life, can we, is a bridge possible? Well, one bit of hope, I think, actually comes from uh, the weekend elections this past weekend in France. We have a real structural problem where 35% can win. And mm. until we change that, we're not going to be able to get either mm. democracy or some real workable solutions to some of these deep problems. Uh, we're one of the last few countries in the world that stick with a single district where uh, a minority can take office and a president can take office not by winning the majority of the population. Yeah. Every other country has at least two rounds or proportional and if you can move in that direction, I think that the people could actually solve these problems. But as long as we allow a minority group that's intent 
and uh, on really sowing dissent, uh, I think it makes it problematic. And I think you know, that goes to the very roots of our democracy, where the, the whole notion of electoral college had to do with minority control. And, and the district system. I think it, the district system is just as bad as the electoral college, if that's what gets all the attention. Yeah. Amara, would you like to jump in? Um, um, yeah, there's one uh, point on that that I think is really important, and that is what happened recently um, in the UK-British election, where it appeared as if um, the Conservative Party, um, which is a center-right um, and on certain issues quite right-wing party, um, looked as if it was going to win uh, a massive whopping majority. Uh, but then Jeremy Corbyn did something that was really important, which was he came up with an alternative vision for what the society should be. Um, and although, and, and totally closed that gap, um, and the Conservative Party, while they are returned to power for right now, are worse off than when they began. And I think um, there's a hunger for a new vision. Um, and I think that that's one of the things that's actually missing in our politics, and that when that is, um, strung together in a way that resonates, I still believe that the forces that want um, a country that works for everyone, that is, is in the best tradition of the best ideals, you know what I said, ideals, the best ideals of the United States, right. is, is possible. Um, and from that then, and from that new um, political awakening that we can have, um, new possibilities for change um, can flow. Um, and I agree with what was just said. I mean, I think that ultimately um, we have to transform our policies. So ultimately what's going to heal the divide, right, are things being done differently. It's really that, that, that simply. But in order for things to be done differently, um, a, a different vision has to be put forth and a, different people have to be in power. And that is one of the things that we have to think about. But there is hope in that where someone who is from the margins of their party, out of nowhere can come and lay the groundwork for a new societal vision that is about healing that divide. So, Mark, this is, you know, what you share in terms of your own lived experience um, working with that early coalition in your youth um, makes reference to a contact hypothesis, a theory that said if we can put people from different and divergent groups together to at least relate to each other in some way, they would then come to the realization of how similar they were and then we would have that very kumbaya moment that we're talking about. And it's a hypothesis for a reason because we know it doesn't work. Mm -hmm. That's the first point. But also to speak to some of the points that I think are being raised specifically about politics and where we are is I say it's hard for us to cross that divide that we're speaking of because so many of us in this nation are intellectually lazy. And I don't mean mm -hmm. that from the perspective of, oh, we all need to be college going and, and um, uh, be formally educated, but we do need to do the work to understand the system in which we live in. And a lot of us don't do that. So instead, what we do is simply respond and act upon how we feel, what our emotions are related to a subject. And so much of that comes from our lived experiences, how I was raised. So then I respond to something in my adult life based on those lived experiences, which is largely and oftentimes emotional. And it's not about where's the knowledge, where's the research, where's the work that I've done to to actually learn about a particular topic so that I can then move 
forth. And so as long as we're willing to stay in that space of not engaging in a real and deep level, then we won't be able to cross that divide. I'm not even sure if we're teaching people how to do that. I mean, I, I, agree, I agree with, with Dr. Moffitt about trying to get people to engage with these issues on a much deeper level. I think when you look at what is happening in the school system, uh, people and are not training young people to do this, that learning how to deeply engage is not something that you learn at 26 or yep. 34. It yep. really is part of the ways in which we train up, uh, awake, and engage citizens. I mean, President Trump, to just quote him at this moment, called education the civil rights issue of this time. I would argue that the civil rights issue of this time is dealing with human rights, right, and mm. who is allowed to be at the table. I am someone who has a lot of hope, or I try to anyway because I'm raising kids in this society, but there days and moments like the one we are at now where I feel that we are just kind of acting like Sisyphus right just rolling a big mm-hmm. older up a steep hill because we're not getting to a point of change we're not getting to a point where we are ready to dismantle the system which is what Dr. King said in that speech you know staying awake during the great revolution he said the system itself has to be dismantled I don't know what it gets replaced with I just know what we have now is not working for people who are economically challenged it's not working for women it's not working for black and brown bodies it's not working for the trans populations LGBTQIA it is not working except for the white men who are accustomed to having power at their fingertips and they are not willing, as Frederick Douglass once said, they're not willing to concede the power, right? Because power concedes nothing without a struggle. Are people willing to struggle? I mean, Dr. King, I'm not willing with it. Malcolm X said, if you're not willing to die for freedom, don't put it in your vocabulary. <laughs> so what does that mean? Are you willing to put your body on the line to change things? I'll hold this in my head for a moment and come right back to it. 410-319-8888, four of you just said a lot. Let's go to Errol, you're on the air. Errol, you're on the air. Welcome. Uh, good morning. Good morning. Um, I, I've just I, I love all the comments, and I just wanted to say sorry to see you go with the show, but um, um, thank you. A little bit of sweet, a bittersweet moment. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's a lot of thoughts, you know. But, um, but your guests and, and you as well, bringing up the point about um, getting back to the violence. Um, I, I've what I've seen just from my just from studies and reading. Um, violence is it's it's it starts at a it's at a mental it's a spiritual deficiency. This is the this is the what I'm trying to say is the soul of the of this country was created through violence, and so because of that, that is a ripple effect into into now. So I don't see any difference I, to your question about whether violence whether you know we're we're more violent. No, answer is very simple. No. This country has been violent since the inception. Mm. There's never been ebbs and flows. The only thing that's different is now is there's more exposure mm-hmm. because of social media. We we mm-hmm. see a lot more of the Philando Castillos, but that's been going on. That's been going on in my community. I've I've seen. I saw a man get 45 shots mm. pumped into him because he was reaching for his um the uh, the club for his wheel or, or for his steering wheel. Mm. Um, and that was no and. I hate to say it, but there, there was a normalcy to that mm. in our neighborhood because it happened before that, and it happened before that too, you know. And um, the only difference now is that there's more media exposure, and I think that can be part of the answer because more people are seeing it. You can't deny it, and I mean, and, and I'm talking about for those people who who disbelieve, for those people who um, who don't have that experience, like I have 
or many of us have, um, I think that can start to change. But I think the answer is not political. I think it starts at the hearts and minds of people mm-hmm. because it is the hearts and minds of people that created this country. The four, Think about the forefathers. They were slave owners. These were people that basically decimated a nation in order to just settle the country. I'm talking about the Native Americans. They were they were basically decimated to create this country. So what we have, the, the answer, it, it, it's going to, it's not a, I don't think there's a quick fix. I don't think it's just political. I think it starts at the grassroots level. I think it's me and you. I think it's, I, I really do. I think it's, it's more, it's not gun control because, you know, guns don't kill people. It's people that kill people. Mm-hmm. Don't get me wrong. I, I want gun control. I want guns out of the hands of, of as many nuts and bolts as possible. But what I'm trying to say is that the, the real answer is at the level of hearts and minds. Like, in other words, like how we treat each other, how how we treat right. each other in our own black communities, how we treat. You were talking about it before with that with that program that you in, and I think that's the real. It, just taking a second to just how are you doing? Just something as simple as that. Violence is a is a is a. I think that the violence at its lowest level at, at its at its core is indifference. To humanity. I appreciate the color, Errol. Mm, Errol, yeah, was, um, yeah. uh, and, and the thoughtful comments. Um, he said quite a lot. Mm-hmm. I, I agree with with most of it. I definitely do. Um, I, I do agree that the real battle that we're fighting now is for the hearts and minds of people. I mean, that's what the Kerner Commission said in, in 1998, that the battle is really not about communities anymore. It's about the hearts and minds. And if you're not changing that, then what are you changing? Policies, practices, laws, and procedures can change. But if people don't change the way they see other people, then they will always reach for their gun in the face of a young black woman with her children rather than for their taser. They will always reach for the taser in the face of a white man who's just killed a bunch of people instead of their gun. It's the hearts and minds that we are battling for. And that is the final frontier that I'm not sure how we can overcome that. I also think it's a question of, Mark uh, of, of and. We need to do that, but we also need to engage in really ordinary politics. I think of when Adam Clayton Powell became a committee chairman and said, we're going to get to work. And all of the legislation on the civil rights agenda that had been stalled suddenly got this new push. And uh, he had a new sense of authority that made things move. And we need that, too. It's not one or the other. It's everything. Mm-hmm. And on that note, we're going to take a very short break and come right back with our four guests. And the folks who are calling in at 410-319-8888 to tweet us at Mark Steiner and send an email to talk at org. And I really do want to explore in this last half an hour on the, with, the, with these four guests, mm-hmm. how, how do we make this bridge in America is it possible and uh, and I and I, I that's where I started and I and I have some thoughts on that and see what folks think join us 410-319-8888 welcome back folks this is Mark Steiner right here on the Mark Steiner show when you're a source for cool jazz and more WEAA 88.9 FM the voice of the community I'm here with Imara Jones and we're all waiting for his show to come up, the Progressive Millennials of Color. Um, and uh, what comes out of that, Mark Trahan, who uh, is a professor at the University of North Dakota in journalism and writer at TrahanReports.com, Dr. Kay Whitehead, uh, professor of communications and African-African-American studies at Loyola University of Maryland, Dr. Kimberly Moffitt, uh, professor of American studies at University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and you all are 410-319-8888. Ernest, you're the next caller. We're going to come to you, but let me throw this up. Think, what I'm thinking about here. I said I posited this during the break. Is America any more violent mm. than any other place in the in the, in the world? 
And I also think about the violence that we do have in this country, which is really internalized violence. His fellow James Hodgkinson, who shot Scalise and the other mm-hmm. folks at that congressional baseball practice, he had a history of violence. I mean, viciously beating up his uh, his his mentally uh, his his niece, who who was either emotion disturbed or. Um, uh, had mental issues as well, but you know, dragged her out of her hair and beat her. Uh, was arrested for things like that. Pulled a gun on his next door neighbor. Um, the internalized violence you see here in a city like Baltimore. I said, if you know, Baltimore actually has one of the highest murder rates in the country. Mm-hmm. And if you if if you looked at Baltimore's murder rate, if it had the same murder rate as London, which has like 15 times as many people as Baltimore. Mm-hmm. We'd have 15 murders. That's it. <laughs> I mean, that, that's <laughs> weekend for us, <laughs> right? And and so, if you if you look at the internalized violence that takes place on the res or in up in the holler, if you think of the internalized violence that takes place in people's homes, is that so? We have to get to the heart of what this really is, you know, and why we are the way we are. Um, and I think that that's it. May have something to do with. People say you cannot have a, have a heterogeneous nation. Well, I'm not sure. I, I don't believe that. I don't either. Mm-hmm. But I think the heterogeneity of this nation, the way it was founded, meant that you needed violence to, to keep things in control the way some groups in America thought it should be controlled. Right. So, I mean, so, that, so I, I just want to— But that part is true because you had to keep certain groups in a particular place in order for the society to run the way that you wanted it to do. And so allowing now a space and time where apparently or supposedly we are all free means then that people aren't occupying those same social spaces or statuses that were expected, and that's creating a lot of the friction that I think we are experiencing now. So uh, let me take a specific example of, of how we try to explain our way out of this. So, mm-hmm. so you, so you okay. look at the kind of very conservative media going on, talking about the, the, the left-wing Democrats, uh, and, and as if Democrats were actually on the left-wing, but left-wing Democrats <laughs> uh, inciting the violence that led to Hodgkinson's shooting. Right. Yet people on the left have an analysis that says that the violence taking place by mostly whites against people of color in this country, is because of the deep racist roots, and that's what has fueled the post the, the, the Trumpian violence that has taken place. Now, I just used the word Trumpian violence, so I did it. <laughs> yes. right? so, so, I mean, so uh, is there truth? Does any of this truth cross, Mark Trahant? I think it's funny. I was just uh, <laughs> thinking about uh, Shakespeare in the Park. Oh, right, oh, right, right, yeah. right, right. Yeah. Oh, yes. Even the story gets twisted. Yeah. This is a story that says don't use violence to overthrow a society that it's not going to work out the way you want, and it's one that they should be celebrating, and yet all they can focus on is that one element. And I think that's the problem, is so much of our conversation is taken out of context. We don't have that large... This is a country that's founded on uh, violence and racism, and until that story gets told as part of everything else, you can't correct some of these root problems. Yeah, and what I find interesting is that we'd spend so much time wanting to hit the reset button and then move forth without having the conversation about all that happened to get us to this very point. And so there are these major historical events in our history that has clearly led us to the very place that we're in. So there is no clean slate, let's start anew. There has to be deep conversations about where and how we got here in order for us to figure out very strategic 
strategically and collectively how to move forth. And so when you're holding on to the narrative that anything that is black or the uh, concept of blackness means violent or criminal or degenerate or sexual, hypersexual, all of those things being this negative baggage that you've put on that particular concept, how then do you expect an entire nation to wipe that slate clean and say, now we move forth? Because it's clear based on the violence that we see in particular in terms of police brutality that there is that common thread where blackness is intimidating, blackness is threatening, blackness is seen as violent, and so I then must react in a particular way, regardless of the situation, regardless of the background of the individual, but it's just the sheer presence of that black body, in particular when it's male, that I have to have this reaction to. And this is a cycle so, that has gone on. Go ahead. I mean, I'm no, thinking we, about, I was just wanting to re- reply to what Kim was saying about this cycle uh, around this notion of blackness um, with the ways in which we understand it, which tying it to police brutality. I guess I go back a little bit farther than that. I think about, you know, after Nat Turner. I mean, what happened? They went on a rampage, killing black people indiscriminately. I think about, you know, the response to Harriet Tubman and yep. the fact that they were attacking black enslaved women at that time. Yep. I think about, you know, what happened during the time of the black renaissance and any black artists that they thought might have been part of the lesbian or gay community, they were attacked. And this is the reasons why people like James Baldwin left this country. And, you know, if you look at his letter to his nephew, I mean, this cycle of blackness continues with the way in which the white community has been trained to respond Mm -hmm. in fear, in anger, and with violence. We are not just seeing it with James Hodgkinson's. This was not created from what you call, you know, the Trumpian era, which I'm sure (laughs) Donald Trump, if he's listening, loves the fact that you've named this era after him. (laughs) He's very happy about that, Mark Steiner. Let's just call it a moment. (laughs) The the Trumpian moment. Um, But James Hodgkinson was not created in the Trumpian moment. He is just the latest tip on this long cycle of violence against the black and brown and now white bodies. He's Mm -hmm. saying that he is responding and he's speaking up for all the things that have happened. When we have in this country created what we call, I think, when we talk about the people who commit this type of violence, if it is a black person committing violence, then we then indict the entire black community. that he is a product of his community. This is what black people do. It's the criminalization of the black body. But when it's a white person who's committing this violence, I think of Dylan Storm Roof, he becomes a single person and he has mental issues that we must delve into rather than saying there's something else happening here. But we also did that with Hodgkinson. Yeah. I mean, say about Hodgkinson. It's a name you don't have to remember in this Trumpian moment. We also talk about his mental illness, right? Yeah. I mean, so, and Mara, let me leap in for you the phones yeah i mean i think for me um it's kind of where you started this particular segment about what comes next and how we reorient ourselves there i think for me um it's that we have to have a fundamental reorientation and shift in power in this country and i mean power in, in all of the senses of the word i don't only mean political um, and I, and I, what's interesting is that power often, in some people's minds, means dominance, um, which is, I think, one of the tripwires, but excuse me, it actually means people who have the ability to be able to impact what is happening um, in the institutions and places and people that have a direct impact on their lives. I don't have enough of that in this country. And I think one of the best symbols, there are a couple of symbols of what I mean by that, I mean, I think one of the things that is most important about the Amer- America right after the Civil War, such as the, um, the radical Republicans or even 
Johnson, uh, Vietnam aside, um, Johnson domestically um, in the 1960s um, and the policies flowing into the 70s was that was about a, a fundamental reorientation of who had power in the country, um, who was let in, um, who was allowed to go to school, mm-hmm. um, who was allowed to get loans, who was allowed to vote. Mm-hmm. Um, there, were, there were fundamental reorientations of power in this country. And the problem is that every time we've made those advances, there's also a similar backlash amongst people who believe that, that those increases in power are, even though they were marginal, were somehow unjustified. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and somehow unjustified because they don't fundamentally believe that America is for everybody. That's right. And that's, and that's been the fundamental argument from the beginning that we haven't resolved. Is the country for a few people or is it for everybody? Right, right. Um, and, I, and I think that, um, so therefore, what we have to do is that somehow we have to get to a point where one, we realize, no, we're ending this argument, the country's for everybody, <laughs> and, so that means, and so that means everybody ought to have power. And that's the fundamental issue in split. And so that's where the work has to be done. And there's a lot of work that Mm -hmm. needs to be done around that. And just really quickly, I think one of the issues, and everybody I think probably is going to have an amen moment on that, on this, (laughs) is that even a lot of the institutions and people in this country that are dedicated to the idea of transforming it, when it actually comes to um, shifting actual power, um, sometimes have reticence. I'm talking about foundations sometimes. That's right. Right. I'm talking, you know, I'm talking about universities. Yep. I'm talking about people that are in places that are supposedly bought into the vision that the country is for everybody when it comes to them making individual choices about who gets hired and how to allocate resources and who should vote and who ought to have a union and who ought to be able to do a whole host of things, say no. And that's what we've got to really engage in and begin to hold people accountable. about. We have to have a fundamental shift. And the idea that this country is actually for everybody, and that means that everybody ought to have power. And I think I, I think Amar is right that when we talk about power, how it has been defined for so many of us has been revolving around this concept of domination. And so even the very point of sharing that as a concept, even if you talk about it with children, Oftentimes they do it through sports metaphors. And when you're thinking about sports and having power, it is about dominating. And so if we are already from the outset teaching children and, of course, adults that power is about dominating someone else, then the whole notion of power will never be something that we embrace. Because when power is actually actually activated, you can see it on your city council, you can see it in other places. When there's real power, that is to say <clears throat> that um, people have the ability to be able to influence events either through a whole host of mechanisms that are deemed appropriate, real power actually comes from sharing. Yes. Right? right? You, you actually have that. You have to, if you're trying to get a certain number of votes, you've got to go to people in a system where there's real power sharing. I'm not talking about the Electoral College or what we have now. I'm talking where, you know, there's, uh, everybody is represented in a certain way and they have on city councils and other things when you're talking about, you know, um, doing new sewer lines and all the rest of it. When those things have to, those things, you have to form coalitions and coalitions mm-hmm. inside of parties. You actually have to share when actually people right. have real power. When, there's a, when there is a system based upon domination, you don't have to share. And so that's actually what we have, is that we have systems that are based yeah. upon on domination and, and just one last point on 
on even just going back um, when we were talking about Native and, and um, Native perspectives on American politics, power, power for Standing Rock would have looked something like this. The community that was most affected by the pipe, by this international pipeline being closest to their land would have had the ability to say, we don't want it here because it's going to poison our water. That's actually power. The ability to be able to say and have some influence over the things that are directly impacting you and your life. And we don't have systems of actual sharing power in this country. So let me ask, I'm going to go to the phones you people okay. enjoy this conversation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mark, did you have a quick thought before we hit the phones? Well, actually, the U.S. District Court ruled last week just that, that Standing Rock didn't have a say when it mattered most, and mm. uh, they need to. So, yeah, I mean, that I, I, that's something we need to explore, again, right. in some greater depth, and I think um, in the next week or so here, with Mark and some others, about just what has happened since the Standing Rock and where that leaves the struggles in the Native world and our own struggles here in America as a whole mm-hmm. that support that. 410-319-8888. Let's go to Jim. You're on the air. And then we'll go to Ernest. Good morning, sir. I'm sorry to saw you leaving. I think you're the greatest show on the air. <laughs> Thank you, Jim. I wish I had a half a mind as good as yours. <laughs> <laughs> you probably have a better mind. Go ahead. <laughs> no, sir. You can remember things that I can't even remember. Uh, but what I would like to say, sir, I'm 82 years old and I've been in the small business in Baltimore for, since 1963. And I, I was always successful, but I never made it big where I could expand it. And one day it dawned on me that everybody else that comes to this country was doing different from me. What they were doing was forming networks. And all of them may not be in business, but they all benefit from the, the good that came out of that network. And that when you're in business, in order to compete, you have to have numbers. Everybody's, everything is numbers. You can't have a store with a 500 product and, only, no, and can't compete in the marketplace. And that's why we're not there. We don't know how to organize ourselves for to get those numbers. Because the criteria of the producer is never racist. He just wants you to buy whatever that number is mm-hmm. and give him cash money. Another mistake we make, we think because the guy's nice to us and give us credit, that he's doing us a favor. It's not a favor because nobody gets the best deal with credit. You know, and it goes on and on. I mean, we have now people striving to be ministers instead of factory operators, and that doesn't produce jobs. <laughs> I hear that. <laughs> that's a great line. That's a great, I'm, 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 I remember oh that. That's a great gosh. line. That, that, that's what you just said. And, and it's a valid point because I think one of the um, one of the open criticisms I've always had about um, – us as a people is we have bought the line hook, line and sinker regarding capitalism to only strive to be successful as an individual. Right. And oftentimes that means that we operate in isolation from one another, trying to make sure that we hit it big without recognizing the power that exists in a community and that it does take some give and take among uh, several individuals in order to achieve that bigger goal that we desire. But we're so, I mean, we've embraced it. 
we we drank the Kool-Aid and that's all that we think about. It has to be me, myself and I and anyone else needs to get there as best they can. But isn't that the heart of the American dream? I mean, yes, absolutely. That, I mean, that, that, that is what we teach young people. You pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. You make your own way. It yep. is about you. And now we have this new generation and I've been doing a lot of research looking at the new generation after the millennials, you know, the say nothing generation where they, they spend their entire life on technology and they are learning very quickly that the world is about them. So I should tweet my food. I should, you know, <laughs> tweet what I'm doing with them because somebody somewhere wants to know and wants to, to fan follow this. I, I think Let one me. of the things that I, I was reading over this weekend was just reading the tweets of people responding to the Cosby verdict, which I know we haven't touched on yet, but just listening and reading these tweets because I think you read the tweets and you also listen to the story behind the tweets, right? What are the, what's the pain coming out of women who've been victims of this type of violence <clears throat> and taking to Twitter as a place to share their stories. I think it's interesting. And I think that that's something we have to really get into. And what does this mean for women who've been victimized in this way going forward? I mean, you have this celebrity on one end, but on the right. other hand, what are we saying? So, so bring it back to, I, I want to come back to the phones here. I promised I would and, and get back to, uh, um, to Imara and Mark. Um, because we do live in this world where we, there's a mythology about the bootstraps. Yeah, yeah, you do have to work hard to get what you want in this world. You have to work really hard. Whether it's the places that all four people on this panel have gotten to in their lives, you put a lot of effort into your work. You wouldn't be in the, in the places you're in. But we also forget. I skated, Mark. Huh? That's not true. It's not dating. Yeah, no, no, no. I said I skated. You skated. <laughs> I think you're hardly skating, girl. So, so, and you're right. You're right. And I, th- and I think the other mm. part, though, is we forget that society played a role in where people are. Right. Industry wouldn't have been built if America hadn't put money into the railroads and the highways. This country put money into those things that allowed businesses and people to flourish. <laughs> Um, mostly white folks, but a lot of people to flourish. And I think that that's something we forget. And I think that that's, that's part of the mythology, Mark, and then we're, we're going to get right back to the phones here, that I think we, we really have to, that's another myth that has to get busted, mm. of just the individual doing it on, on his or her own. Right. And that's one thing that's really different in the ethic of a tribal community. Um, in fact, one of the measures mm-hmm. for many tribal people is wealth is measured by how much you give away. Mm-hmm. Yes. Those who can mm-hmm. have great giveaways are the ones that are revered, not the ones that accumulate. Um, so I think there is, a re- I mean, even the railroads, you think about how much pain and misery that caused so that some people could have, a, have less, quote, success, unquote. And that's an important point. And something I learned a lot in, in my, my living and in, in being with parts of native, native communities is that, that, that so many of the leaders in the history, it was what you gave away. If you had more than, no one would starve in, in, in the village mm-hmm. because someone's gonna have to give something away. I was with a woman, we were with a 96 year old woman last night who I uh, really care a great deal about. Um, and and uh, she was talking about how like in, in her growing up in Baltimore in the Jewish world, she said it was people, it was about giving back, yeah. giving away what you, you know, and that's a big piece of what we lose. Mm-hmm. It's all this mind, mind, mind. Don't, don't, don't touch it. What do you all think? Let's go to uh, Ernest. Okay. You're on the air, and then we get another caller in here. Come back to our guests. Okay. Ernest. Yeah. Go ahead. Thank you for taking my call. First of all, um, white people are not going to take the same kind of abuse that black people have endured over the years. 
they will revolt. And to show you how they will revolt was Hoskins. It's one. And because he was white, no matter what he did, what, uh, uh, family brutality or whatever, he was still allowed to get guns and 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 AR15 at that mm-hmm. the other thing is african hybrids in this country are too willing to accept the violence of men women and children put on us by white people uh by the way in 1973, uh, when Schaefer was mayor and Pomeroy was commissioner, they had almost 300 murders in Baltimore City. You can check on that. Mm. I think um, 1972 or 73. So this is this is nothing new. However, we have watched police on camera kill black women, black children. Black, uh, anybody black, they could be uh, they could be foreigners. Uh, like in Trayvon's case, he was a Peruvian uh, mixed with a white man, and nothing happens to these people. And we go to court seeking justice, and we're still singing in twenty seventeen. We shall overcome. Mm. You have to realize the hatred that has been put upon us and that the constant brutality since slavery, peonage, lynchings, Jim Crow, uh, Bob Crow, <laughs> Susie Crow. Okay. Uh, right. We Ernest, got it. We got it, Ernest. Thoughts? No, I, I, I agree with, with, with Ernest. Of course, I'm laughing at the Susie and Bob Crow. <laughs> um, but, but this notion that things are happening within our community, it's happening on television, it's happening you know, on video, I think the one place where I take issue is the fact that people are not doing anything about it. People are trying to do something about it. There are families who are trying to trust the justice system to do its job. There are people who are organizing and and marching in the streets. There are people who are organizing all kinds of campaigns, all kinds of ways of of running for office so they can help to change the laws. It's not that people aren't doing anything. It's not that black people are sitting back and accepting the violence. You can just keep beating on us as long as you want until you get tired. I don't think that is Mm -hmm. what is happening. I also want to note that within the black community, you were talking earlier, Mark, about, you know, within the Jewish community, you know, and also within the Native American community, it's, you get judged by how much you give away. I don't want to skate over the fact that this happens within the black community as well. There's mm-hmm. always been this history <coughs> of, of, you know, as, as black women said in the 19th century, you know, that you, you lift and then you climb and you pull up as you go along, right? That you go forward and you take people with you as you go. That there are countless stories of black communities coming together to send one person off the or making sure people get ahead. And I don't know about anyone else's story here, but when you said that we've all worked hard, I mean, I, I was very quick to say in my head, I also know that I had a safety net. Mm-hmm. You know, I could fail upwards mm-hmm. because my parents were middle class. My yeah. dad was a you know, pastor in D.C. Mm-hmm. So it wasn't if I, I came from like the worst community and I worked really hard and then I overcame. I failed up. I was sent out of the country when I was in 13 years old to Canada, you know, in sixth grade. I failed up. My sons are failing up, right? Because they have a safety net that's been set up by me that was then set up by my parents and all the way through. 
I'm talking about the cycle of people who don't have that. And that's the so, difference between the success between um, um, many white individuals in this country and yeah. blacks. And so when we talk about this notion of buying into and internalizing the American dream and how you are supposed to do it as an individual, individual, the difference is so many white individuals, such as Trump, come from a lineage where they already have that safety net that's real nice and tall for them in which to fall back on in ways that many African Americans in this country do not have. And so, yes, there are many of us do that do have access to being from middle class backgrounds and seemingly have su- a support structure, but there's so many more who don't have that and are attempting to strive for this American right. dream without that safety net. So let me get back to the two guests here on the phone and Veronica quick thought Veronica and I want to close out with some thoughts uh, from Imara and Mark this American dream without that safety. Okay. So you get back to the two guests here on the phone. Turn your radio down. Veronica, quick turn your radio down, Veronica. Did we lose her? Ver- I think we might have lost her. Veronica? All right, let me, let, me, so let me go back to Imara and Ernest and see if we can get Veronica back here uh, for some final thoughts from you all. Imara and then, Ern- and, and then Mark. Yeah, I just want to just go back to the notion of a fundamental change and, and who has power. Um, I think that the, what you all are talking about, the ethos and communities of sharing, that's actually the way that poor communities function and the way that they have survived and continue to survive. And that if we had actual more power with more mar- marginalized people were able to have a say in what goes on in this country, we would actually have more sharing. We would actually have a better society. Um, and I think one of the examples of that, just to um, sort of stretch what you were talking about in terms of what happened in London, but for me, one of the most symbolic things of everything that's sort of gone off the rails um, recently um, in global economics and politics um, and society worldwide is the Grenfell Tower um, fire in London, where mm. um, uh, nearly 100 people have burned to death in one of the wealthiest neighborhoods in the world simply because um, wealthy people around this housing project, essentially, um, wanted it to look better. And so instead of putting sprinklers inside of the building, instead of putting um, fire extinguishers inside of the building, instead of ensuring that the fire alarm worked, decide to clad the building in styrofoam and paint it and cover it with aluminum so that it would look better. And so they transformed an, uh, an inflammable building, which is made out of concrete, into when that was downright incendiary. And what's interesting about that is that the residents inside had complained about that, mm-hmm. had said, had been saying to the local council, which is dominated by wealthy people, that, look, you have enshrined us in a death trap. Um, mm-hmm. and, more, and, more to the, and, and more to the point, um, the, the, a lot of the, the work on that building had been subcontracted out to um, wealthy companies that were trying to do it on the cheap. And this goes back to the point of if people everyone in a society has actual power, then things like that wouldn't happen. See, what I'm saying, you can take, take that example across the board. We're, we're almost out of time, and I, do, I wish we could talk more about London because that was also the privatization of public housing mm-hmm. that led right. to that as well. So, yeah. And, and a, right. a closing thought, Mark Trahan, I'm sorry to leave you to the end. Okay, well, just real quick. Uh, today the Supreme Court uh, said struck down a federal law that said you, know, you can't trademark a racist name. And so they're incorporating the idea of this violence in in law. And uh, I think that says wow. pretty much everything. Well, <laughs> I, what I'd like to do, we'll schedule time, Mark, to kind of do a, a 
good, strong one-on-one about all the issues that you raised today that I want to get back to. Yeah. Uh, and maybe record that this week to give to our listeners later on in the week. And I want to thank all of you for being here. Mark Trahan, it's always great to have your you and your thoughts and analysis on the show, along with Amara Jones, Dr. Kay Whitehead, and Dr. Kimberly Moffat. Thank you all for being in the studio. Thank you. And we'll see you both next hour. And I'll see you to Amara and Mark very soon. Thank very you all. Good. Thank you all so much. Great. Thank, thank you. you. And we're going to take a short break, come back, and look at why Baltimore is a fragile city. How can we make it a stronger city?